The following is a conversation between Pam Iorio, President and CEO of Big Brothers Big Sisters of America, and Denver Frederick, the host of The Business of Giving. The goal of Big Brothers Big Sisters of America is to help all children reach their potential through professionally supported one-to-one relationships with volunteer mentors. But that service model can be disrupted in the midst of a pandemic. And here to tell us how they're adapting is Pam Iorio, the president and CEO of Big Brothers Big Sisters America. Welcome to the Business of Giving, Pam. Great to be with you. You know, first tell us about the organization and the work that you do. All 50 states, 240 agencies, covering thousands of communities, matching big volunteers with their little. You volunteer to become a big brother, Denver. Someone else volunteers to become a big sister, and they get professionally matched with a little. We go from ages six into young adulthood, and then that match is professionally monitored. So, you know, you're not left out on your own, and the professional staff person checks in with you, the the volunteer big, as well as the parent, the guardian, the little. Child safety, as you can imagine, incredibly important, number one with us. We've been around for 116 years. Mm. It all started in New York City and in 1904. So, you know, it's an incredible organization. I've really been privileged to be part of it for the past six years. Seeing these authentic relationships, you know, people start off as strangers. They start off from different walks of life, different parts of town, different economic circumstances. But then they're brought together and they spend time together every week. And I have seen these relationships truly become like family. In fact, people have been in each other's weddings. And I have literally seen people have introduced me to their, I'd like you to meet my little of 45 years. You know, wow. that, that's literally it. But the average length of a match is 31 months. But the effects can last a lifetime. Everyone wants to have someone who's in their corner. All of us, I bet you are in this situation. I am. I would never have become successful professionally without mentors, very key people in my life who took an interest in me and helped guide me and show me different paths. Everyone needs that. And some people, some kids today and throughout history have just not had those opportunities. Sometimes they're just given the circumstances of their life, their birth, the neighborhood they live in, whatever it may be. They don't really have positive role models. And Big Brothers Big Sisters, I think, has just an incredible impact on young people. And I think it's something that's always going to be around because it's needed. It's so fundamental to our nation. And that kind of philanthropy that says, step up and volunteer. Step up and give of yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think we've always had that in our country. And Big Brothers, Big Sisters is the best of that. Yeah. And not only for the littles, as you were alluding to there, it's also great for the bigs, isn't it? Oh, it is. I mean, it has a real impact on the bigs. Over the years, I've heard from littles about what the difference that their big brother or big sister has made in their life. But just as much I've heard from the bigs. My life, you know, they'll say to me, my life was forever changed when I became a big sister, a big brother. I've learned so much. You know, I mean, you see this over and over again in people who stay in touch with their littles decades after the match has ended. And it's a beautiful thing. It's sweet, all right. Have you been able to get at least a general assessment of the impact that this pandemic is having on those littles? 
Well, you can imagine, right? Here's our mission, one-to-one -one mentoring, right? So you are a big brother and you go and spend a couple of hours with your little brother. You go to a baseball game, you go to a park, you go to a store, you go and get ice cream together, you do a myriad of activities, but the whole crux of our mission is one-to-one -one mentoring. Mm -hmm. And along comes a pandemic, <laughs> the first thing is that we all need to stay at least six feet away from one another, stay at home, no more sports, no more gatherings, no more stores or going to stores or restaurants. Oh, nothing. Nothing. So life as we know it shuts down. So here's the thing. I mean, at first it was, you know, I'd say that the first week we were all just talking to one another like, holy cow. I mean, this is our whole model. You just can't keep good people down, can you? And, and so, <laughs> you know, they just started in on all the virtual ways to stay together and FaceTime. And then here come donations of iPads to the littles, right? So, you know, I just got sent something last week from Tallahassee, Florida. Stacks and stacks of iPads delivered so that they could keep in touch. They start delivering food to the families of littles. Oh, wow. um, Drive-by birthday shout-outs you know, baskets left at doors, letter writing together, you know, holding up their letters over the phone, over FaceTime. And so sure enough, our bigs and littles, our bigs, they find a way to stay in touch and to say, hey, I'm here for you. I care. I'm still here. I'm still in your corner. Do you not think when things get back to a semblance of normal that some of this is going to continue to help amplify what you have traditionally done? Absolutely. Last year, when you and I met in New York, we were talking about the new technology that Big Brothers Big Sisters had just completed, and it's a national database that we call MatchForce, and it's based on the platform of Salesforce, mm -hmm. and most people are familiar with Salesforce as a CRM, and so we have just a fantastic IT system that all of our agencies use so that when you have a match is entered into this database and all the activities are entered into the database, the outcomes are part of that database. So everyone uses it. So everyone's on match force all the time, right? And it really helps in terms of accountability, child safety, a lot of things. So very modern, we're totally state of the art. But I tell you, we're about to become even more state of the art because <laughs> we have now embarked on a virtual platform that will be integrated into match force we just signed the contracts about 10 days ago. The project is going faster than ever and should be done by June the 1st. And so then all of our agencies now are going to have a virtual platform. I mean, they won't have to depend on Zoom or FaceTime or, you know, all the different things. We want a system where we're also all held accountable and is integrated into a person's record of the match. So we're building out this virtual platform and it's going to have a lot of capabilities that will grow over the years. So we were already hitting kind of a really great point in technology where we were, I think, best in class, but now we've accelerated that. That's great. I'm going to ask you to uh, take a step back from that because you've overseen a couple digital transformations. You did it in Tampa when you served there as a mayor. And you've done it here now, not once, but twice at Big Brothers Big Sisters. What are the keys to doing that? Because I've been talking to so many nonprofit organizations that are just starting on that journey. And they're not quite sure how to get started. They don't want to spend a lot of money. They're never going to use the capability of. 
Would you have any advice for those nonprofits who realize they need to get into the digital world in a more significant way? Absolutely. And if this pandemic and the ramifications of it don't tell us anything, if it teaches us anything, it's that we really do have to rely a great deal on technology. So here's the thing. You need two things when you embark on a technology transformation of any kind. You need a chief technology officer or whatever you're going to call him or her, Mm -hmm. who not only knows what they're doing technically, but has the ability to actually communicate. So many people are good technologically, but not good communicators. Mm. And so if they can't communicate, particularly like in our case with a federated nation, so we have 240 agencies and we're the mothership. The mothership can only be as successful as we communicate to our agencies and they communicate back to us and we integrate their input. So that's number one. You just have to have that. We're very fortunate, Big Brothers, Big Sisters, in that we really have a fantastic chief technology officer who really understands our agencies and can communicate with them. And that's very important. And the second thing is, just like when you're building a house and you have to choose your contractor, and people always say, if you tell someone you're building a house or renovating, they're like, oh, this is going to be the worst experience of your life. You're probably going to end up divorced. You know, you're going to hate your contractor. You're going to end up in litigation. And that often is the case. But when we selected our builder of our system, and I'll give them a shout out, their name is Traction on Demand out of Canada, and they do a lot of work with Salesforce. At the end of the house building, you know, by the time our new system was built, not only are we still talking to one another, but they're now building this extra piece that we're just talking about that I just referenced. Mm-hmm. And so just like when you build your house, you better build a contractor who really has a great track record, who under promises and over delivers. Same thing with technology. So think about your technology in terms of construction and the kind of project manager you would select for construction and the kind of company you would select to build your home. And if you look at it in those terms, it helps you as a nonprofit in doing it in the nonprofit realm. Yeah, really good advice. And it also sounds like with your contractor, you have a relationship. This is not a transaction. It sounds as if we're partners here. They're not vendors, they're partners. And that changes the nature of how you work together. Yeah, to me, that's the only way to operate. I view Salesforce as a partner. Sure, we pay them all these licenses. We pay the license fees. But they have been true partners with us in helping us get to where we are today. You know, there's Salesforce and then there's Salesforce.org, which is the Mm -hmm. nonprofit arm. And I can't say enough about the way in which they work with us. They truly believe in our mission and they want to see us become a success story. So I think in any world, whether you're in for-profit business or nonprofit business, the more you can look at people as partners and work with them and treat them that way, I just think you're going to be much more successful than viewing them as a contractor or a vendor. Yeah, absolutely. And Salesforce.org are great partners. What has been the impact of all this on your fundraising and your fiscal health? And how are you and the board sitting down and huddling and thinking about all that? Yeah, I don't think our situation is any different from anyone else. I don't care what the nonprofit is. Everyone is suffering Mm -hmm. uh, in our case. So I don't want to hold out Big Brothers, Big Sisters to be in a different boat. Most of our agencies had a lot of springtime fundraisers, Bowl for Kids Sake, the golf tournament, the gala, all canceled. And, you know, as every day goes by, you really have to think that it's going to be canceled for all of 2020. 2020 just looks like it's going to be a washout in terms of people getting together, you know, outside of 
just a handful. So not only did they lose, and we quantified it, we went out and we really did kind of a stress test of our agencies to see where they were. Overall in our federation, a loss of at least $38 million. But the problem with that $38 million is that most of it is that unrestricted money, not to get too technical, but people listening, they know in the nonprofit world is that unrestricted money that isn't for a specific purpose that really goes to pay for overhead, pay salaries and to keep the lights on. And a lot of that money, when they have a bowl for kids' sake or a golf tournament, that's what it goes for. Because throughout the year, you might get a grant from a particular foundation, but it's for a very specific purpose. And so our agencies have really been struggling. Now, many of them have tried to take advantage of that PPP, Paycheck Protection Plan, out of the SBA and out of the CARES Act that just passed. And worst as of the date that you and I are talking, some have been able to avail themselves of that, which is essentially two months of salary and rent. But many were not. And of course, it's out of money right now. We hope that more money will be injected into that program. But I'm not sure right now if the majority of our agencies were able to avail themselves of that because of the competition and limited number of banks and the capacity just to get it through in the short time frame. Mm-hmm. How is this changing your workplace culture? It's amazing how organizations that I've observed, Pam, are working faster and quicker and smarter. And all of them are trying to say, what pieces of this are we going to take back when we return to the office? Give us a sense of what's happening in your organization along all those lines. Well, you're right. You do. In many cases, I mean, we've all worked from home. This is my fifth week of working from home. And the national office is about 50 people. And so we're all been working from home. And then we have about 240 agencies. I think some people find it more productive. But I think that for the people who have, I mean, my children are already grown. And now I'm even a grandmother. So I'm not at home homeschooling my kids anymore. They're young adults. But where I think it's been very tough and and tough and productivity is not enhanced is when school is closed, there's no childcare and you have a four, six, and eight-year-old at home. Oh, yeah. And that's a good chunk of employees, not only at the national office, but when you look at agencies, a lot of younger people work in social service nonprofits. Uh, A lot of them have young children. And I think it's been a very tough struggle for those moms and dads to balance homeschooling, paying attention to your kid, making sure they're not getting into something, and yet trying to do a professional eight-hour workday. So I think that productivity is in the eye of each person. It depends on your age, your family, your lifestyle, who you live with, the kind of home you have, your personality, whether you thrive on external motivation or whether you're basically an introvert and glad you don't have to see people anyhow. I mean, you know, it really depends. I think in our organization, they really miss seeing one another. We have a happy workplace at Big Brothers Big Sisters of America, and people come to work and they like each other. Mm-hmm. And we did all kinds of things together, and we had fun, and we celebrated things, and we've done a lot virtually, and we keep in touch a lot. Still, there's something to be said for just the camaraderie of being with somebody. Yeah. Well, I do know this. This has been hell for extroverts. They really, <laughs> they, I know. They're just going out. Introverts can handle this okay, but the extroverts are going crazy. 
Well, through all this, Pam, what have you found to be the keys to being an effective leader in a crisis? You know, you've been through a number of crises and all the important appointments you've had in your life, but no one has had a crisis quite like this. What have you found to be critical? And do you think it's going to change the way people look at leaders in the sector and the expectations they have of them once we come out on the other end of this? Well, in terms of my own approach, and I don't have any secret sauce or a special person in any way, I mean, here's the thing. I think when you go through a tough time, and true, none of us have been through a pandemic, but whatever the tough time is, a death of someone you love, difficulty in any respect, you have to make the best of each day. And that's always been my philosophy, no matter how bad things get, you try to do your best for that day. And not every day is an equal day. Sometimes you are going to have a, just a plain bad day, whether you lead an organization or whether you were just hired in an entry-level position. Not everyone is even every single day. And so my approach has always been do my best every single day. And in a case like this with a pandemic with so much that's unknown, different than a hurricane, for example, a hurricane comes you know there's going to be a certain amount of devastation, but you know there's going to be a period of cleanup. Unlikely you're going to be hit with a second one, right? This is a complete unknown. We have no idea how long it's going to last. This is one of those rare instances where you don't take the long view. You know, mm. you always say to people, take the long view. Yeah. In this case, it's better not to take the long view because that could be awfully depressing. Yeah. So don't take the long view. Take what you have today, right? Yeah. And, you know... I'm grateful for every day. And I try to express that to my team. You have to say thank you a little bit more. Make sure that you're thanking people for the effort that they're putting out. And just be grateful for every single day. And the long view is a little bit something to put off a shelf for now because it's not possible to see the long view. So make the best of today. And for me, that's a philosophy that works. Yeah, it's a great philosophy. In this case, well, there's so much ambiguity about this. You can't do enough scenario planning to figure out what's going to happen. So all you can do is say, what can I do to move the needle forward today? And then assess tomorrow when it comes and then move it forward based on the information you have then. And there's really no other way to do it. But I am going to ask if I can to take the long view on this. What do you think the impact of this pandemic is going to have on the sector? First, as how it pertains to how philanthropic organizations think about and go about their giving, and then how nonprofits are going to have to operate in the future if they're going to be able to first survive and then thrive. Several things. And having just said, I don't take the long view, I do (laughs) think about (laughs) where, where we're going to end with all this, at least where I'm going to. The first is an obvious thing, and that is we as a society often value people based on how much money they make. Mm. Big mistake. It's always been a mistake in our society. But it's one of the byproducts of a capitalistic system that when people tend to make a lot of money, you tend to, as a society, they just somehow tend to be elevated a bit. Not a good value system to have. And I think that this has exposed the vacuous nature of that value system. Because indeed, the people who have kept this country running are not the people making six figures. Mm -hmm. They are people who, in many cases, have been making minimum wages and have not been particularly valued as an occupation. And so after this is all over with, 
I hope that there is a reassessment of who we actually value and why would we value someone based on how much money they make. That's yeah. sad. Mm -hmm. And so to the degree that young people grow up thinking that way, I hope there's a reorientation to valuing each human being as equal in our world and that every person has something important to contribute. And in fact, during the time of this pandemic, it has been people who sometimes we hardly notice who have contributed the most. Sure. And Even. I think that that is something that I hope is a turning point in our society because it is a very important one that needs to happen. And getting away from that other type of valuation, which is awful anyway. In terms of the nonprofit world, I'm new to the nonprofit world. I didn't have this career before mm -hmm. my six years with Big Brothers, Big Sisters of America. And so as I learned a lot about the nonprofit world, certain things just didn't make sense to me, but nonetheless, that's what it is. But part of what doesn't make sense, and I see it's shifting right now, and I'm so thankful to so many of our funders who have basically said, you know the grant that we gave you last year? You can use it for whatever you want. Uh -huh. I understand, you know, maybe if I was on the other side and I controlled a big billion dollar fund, maybe I too would sit around and say, look, I'm gonna give you this grant, but it can only be used for this, and I want you to write a report on this. I get that, I would probably be like that too. But when you really think about it, if you know that the organization that you're giving to is good, that they're good with their finances, that they're good from an ethical standpoint, that their mission is just and right and the one that you want to support, then just give them money. Because it is so hard. There are so many buckets. You know, our organization, there's this fund and that, and we have, I mean, our temporary restricted fund is buckets galore, you know, and it makes everything always so complicated that this percentage has to come because it's for this program and this percentage for this program. And then something like a pandemic happens and it's like, wait a minute, we just need money just to operate, yeah. just to exist. And so I think that one of the real changes that could occur with the relationship between philanthropy, particularly foundations and the nonprofit community, is maybe the foundations and individuals might just start thinking, you know what, if I really feel strongly about big brothers, big sisters, I'm just gonna give to them. Mm -hmm. I'm not gonna give to them and ask that they make so many matches or that it's gotta be a match of this particular population to this or this sort of thing or this kind of programmatic or this kind of training. If you just give it to us, we will be good stewards of it. And that, I think, needs to change throughout the entire nonprofit sphere. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It would also unleash the innovation and creativity of the nonprofit sphere. And you know, there was a great metaphor on this, Pam, and it makes you wonder why we put up with it as nonprofit organizations. But it was going into a FedEx office and sending a $35 package and telling the guy behind the desk, here's my $35, but I don't want any of it to go to gasoline, okay? Not on your <laughs> trucks, not on your gas, and certainly, for goodness sake, I want none of it to go to you, clerk, right. because you're overhead. <laughs> and but, so how could any business operate that way, but we're asked to operate in that fashion. But I want so, the package to get there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> so. 
finally, Pam, you know, traumatic events like this, boy, they bring an endless series of challenges. But, you know, they also can provide some opportunities. And I thought you hit on a couple big ones there for society. But what opportunities do you see for Big Brothers, Big Sisters, America, as you look to the future coming out of all this? It is so important that people in this country have enough to eat. And it is so important that they all have a roof over their head. And equally as important is a young person's mental health. And coming out of this pandemic, you have millions of young people who have been away from their friends and support groups for months. It is not a normal thing at all. Mm -hmm. And it is going to have a huge mental health impact on our young people. And so mentoring has often been thought of as a nice thing. Isn't it nice that you have a mentor? Mentoring is essential. And after this pandemic clears out and we return to a different country because we will be different, mm -hmm. the relationships between our bigs and our littles and the way in which they are supported really has to be considered an essential part of a young person's health. Because if we don't pay attention to their mental health, then having the shelter and the food, it all has to come together, right? You can't have it. You really need it all. Yeah. And I think that that's what I think is going to change about the way in which we are perceived. I think that anyone who had a previous thought that it was just a nicety, that's going to go away and replaced with it's a necessity. Mm -hmm. It's an essential. Well, for this necessity, what can listeners do to assist Big Brothers, Big Sisters America and give you the financial support that you need to continue on this work? Glad you asked. BBBS.org is our national website. And on that BBBS.org, there's a place to donate. And you can either go to the place on our site where you can find your own agency. So you can, if you want to give just to the local agency, you can find that on our website and then direct your donation there, or you can give to the national office. And, you know, it's, it's a tough time with 22 million people as of this taping right now, having lost their jobs. And so we understand that people right now may not have money to give, but good wishes, positive vibes, and wishes of good health to all is what I have to say right now. I have no expectations that anyone is going to do any more than they possibly can. All I hope for is that we return to good health as a country and as a globe. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to let you know, Pam, how grateful I am to you for taking the time to share all this with us today. Thanks so much and stay well. You too. I've really enjoyed. Likewise.